0: Hello, I'm Lewis Jennings And you're listening to episode 7 of Lies and Prize and Liverpool. Now we initially launched this episode last month But we're relaunching it again And this time with a new guest for Confessions from the Closet More on that a bit later on But before that, I just want to talk about conversion therapy Because that's something that's come up in the news recently this week And if you don't know what that is basically conversion therapy attempts to change or suppress a person's sexuality or gender identity now the fact this exists anyway is just strange it does not make sense because our reality is not a belief it's not something that can be changed we exist we are real people the fact that in the 21st century it's still going on there's no words it's a slap in the face to every single person in my community and I can't believe that it's even up for debate in 2021. Now, the Tory government said three years ago that you know they were committed to ending conversion therapy or at least having that talk. Now, I don't even know why we're having that talk anyway, just ban it, simple as that. But, unfortunately, this week, three government equality advisers actually resigned over the lack of action in regards to conversion therapy. Now, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because I just wanted to let you know about it if you didn't, and maybe you're straight and you're listening to this and you didn't even realise that kind of thing still goes on because it sounds so outdated. But unfortunately, that is the case. Conversion therapy is still happening in this country. Anyway, back to today's show because we've got three amazing guest lines up for you, including Olivia Norma, who, in the dialogue, discusses the lack of representation for black queer people in television and film, she also opens up about dealing with racism from a young age. Then in Confessions from the Closet, we hear from Ree Grugel, who talks about coming out as trans in an all lad school and what that was like. And this week's Queero is Detective Sergeant Christian Owens, the first serving police officer to transition in Merseyside Police. So my first guest today is Olivia Norma, and... Olivia thanks for coming on Uh, we first met last week we were on the Jermaine Foster show talking about LGBT representation on the media so how did you find that experience first off
1: yeah I loved it to be honest um not gonna lie I was terrified like I was shaken up to the point that we went on but I'm glad I did it like yeah I wouldn't usually do anything like that so I'm glad I like pushed myself out of my comfort zone
0: I think as well like one of the interesting things that got brought up was about like in with LGBT representation in the media, like, there doesn't seem to be any significant black figures, do they? Um, like, you, have, you haven't really seen black representation in LGBT history. It was something that was actually brought up on the UK version of Drag Race in episode one, um, when two of the queens started talking about it, Taysen and Sina Mandela. Would you agree, like, there isn't really any prominent figures?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the the main issue with it is that there's quite a big... there's a big lack of representation for gay people in general. Um, so usually there's a black black women and black people usually come sort of a level below white people when it comes to representation. Um, so I think there's a lot of representation for straight people out there. There's a tiny bit of representation for gay people out there, but then for black women and for black people in general and black gay people, sorry, there's, not, there's nothing there really. There's nothing that we can really relate to or there's no one that really looks like us out there. Um, and I think the the main problem with it as well is people behind the camera, um, and the directors and things like that. There's no one that we can that looks like us, so there's, they're not going to really create characters or films surrounded by black gay people.
0: No, yeah, and I think that's it, another important thing. It's not just about like what we see on the screen; it's behind the screen and like what what's actually going on in the production of things.
1: Definitely, yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah, there needs to be a big change behind the camera, definitely. Um, but then it's it's quite hard because it's the people really high up and the people really high up are generally straight, cis, white men. Um, so it's not like they're going to be running quickly to make a film about a black gay woman. So, yeah, it's quite difficult, really, to, to get that change. I think if we, if we want that change, we, we will have to do it ourselves kind of thing.
0: What do you feel like in general? Do you feel like change is coming or do you feel like people are just... And when I say people, I mean like white white people are just saying this, but they're not actually doing anything towards making a change. Because, but, but last year when the Black Lives Matters protest started, like there were so many companies who were guilty of not in, in, having any black representation in the films or anything like that, and they said they were going to make a change and promise promise everything, but then I don't feel like they've actually delivered. Because look at the, the Golden Globe nominations, like barely any representation. So how how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think, to be honest, the the Black Lives Matter movement, I think last year when it sort of sparked up after the death of George Floyd, I think a lot of that was people, unfortunately, companies jumping on the bandwagon um, just because everyone was getting called out for racism um, and not being inclusive. So I think a lot of the companies were just doing it to sort of appease the black community and the wider community that would call them out on it. Um, But then since it's it's been like a couple of months, it's been almost a year, hasn't it? Um, Not, from what I've seen, not much has changed. I can't see that there's been any, like you said, the Golden Globe nominations, that's, it's very like white and straight. Um, And yeah, with all the films that are coming out this year and the TV shows, there's still nothing that really has like a true and honest representation of black people and black gay people.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And talking about like your own experience then like me being gay like i'm so angry by it all the time but then with you like you are facing discrimination for every one of your identities and it's like you don't get a break so just what, what is that experience like
1: to be honest it's like you do feel like you're a bit of like an in, an invisible group because like you said you're a, a gay white man it's like you you've got your own oppression but then for me it's like a dual thing so it's like you're oppressed for being a woman, you're oppressed for being gay and you're oppressed for being black um, and oppressed for being a scouser. <laughs> um, people look down on you for that, they do. Um, so yeah, you just feel like you are kind of invisible. Like like I was saying before, there's no one out there that really represents you. Um, so you have to sort of look for these things. Um, you're not just going to find someone that looks like you in mainstream media. Um, so yeah, there's still a big problem with that and I think that needs to improve a lot.
0: And... Uh, so, have you been discriminated against in the past for like being black or being a woman or being gay?
1: Yeah, all my that's life. A really stupid d-
0: question.
1: <laughs> stupid <laughs> question. But <laughs> I was like, no, my life's fine. Um, <laughs> but no, definitely. To be honest, not for being gay, not so much. Like that's probably the thing I don't get discriminated on. And um, for being gay, it's just like stupid things, like the stupid and like minor microaggressions. Um, like like we were talking about last week with Jermaine it's like the looks and things that like you get and people looking down on you and um, but that, like be it, for being a black woman it's like it's very like overt like right in your face and um, especially growing up because I used to I lived first I grew up in Toxerf and then I moved to Anfield and went to school in Everton so it was just it was non-stop really like there was a lot of racism there um but yeah. <laughs> to answer your question to answer your question yeah
0: so would you say though that because I, I think people like to think of Liverpool as this forward thinking you know everyone loves scouts and they think over oh, all these boss socialists and we all get on and we're, we're all welcoming but it's not the case is it like not
1: at all like i think when i remember in um was it 2008 or 2007 when we won the capital of culture i remember thinking yeah. like was it yeah i remember being like how how have we won that? I think like it is good because we've got like the music, and it is—it's such a boss city. It's such a good city, but in terms of race and like um, racial racial discrimination, it's so separate. Like, there's not much integration at all. Like, you've got Toxic, thats your only black area really—and um, outside of that, it's—it is just very white, and you will get fully discriminated um, against just for being black. Um, I think it has changed quite a bit in the past few years. But when I was younger, it was it was really bad. Um, like t- to the extent where I'd just be walking down the street. I remember once walking down me sh- um walking to meet my me mate on Scotty Road. And it yeah. was all men outside the pub. Yeah. We were in our uniforms. I think we were about 14. Um, and there was all men outside the pub. And they started shouting like, what are you doing down here? You shouldn't be down this end. Get back to the south end. So it was just stuff like that. And I've had people like, and um, when I've been with my mates like just walking down the street like big men screaming like racial slayers at me and stuff like that so yeah Liverpool it's not all um happy days it is there is a like a bit of a dark side and they've got a big racist history there
0: like the, the thing that you just said there as well like this this is that being happens when you're being a kid like what, what how old was you do you think when you first experienced racism
1: probably when I was about six or seven Probably yeah because there was like kids in my street or in school when I, f- I think it was probably when I first moved to Anfield to be honest and um, that's when I realized that it was not necessarily different but then that other people were quite racist and they'd be willing to just say things to you just out of the blue just like as you're walking to school or playing in the street so probably yeah around seven.
0: And what about like in school and that, like, like primary school and secondary school, like how did you find it was there?
1: In primary school, I was the only black kid in the school, like for years and years and years um, until my brother and sister come. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was just, it was a very racist school as well. Um, I'd get stuff all the time there. And then when I moved to secondary school, um, there was a few more black kids. But then again, it was like, I think there was me and maybe three other kids in the year that were black. Um and the school was very racist as well. I remember once like um raising a racial incident with the head teacher, and the head teacher herself was like, Oh, I used to say all this kind of stuff myself. <laughs> I remember being like, You're meant to be the one that's helping, <laughs> honestly. I remember being like, You're meant to be the one that's helping me. But yeah, it was me and I had this one mate. and um, we used to constantly argue with teachers. Um and just pull up racist stuff all the time because it was it was quite bad i yeah. remember there was this one yeah there was this one girl and she was like a bit of a like she just always walked around like stomping around and um she was doing a i think she'd been doing a work experience and she was like oh i've been sacked from my work experience because um some black man come in and he wanted a refund and i said fuck off you nigga. oh my god!
0: honestly
1: honestly it you was, bragging and all of me to like oh girl that's so funny That it was bad I think I think the teachers must have had no training on what to do with like racial incidents because most of the kids were black I mean sorry most of the kids were white
2: yeah
1: and so when we pull these things up they'd just be like shocked by it and they wouldn't really know what to do
0: yeah
1: and I've got another little story for you as well yeah I remember (laughs) (laughs) I remember (laughs) this um the the teachers like so if I was with all my mates and we were all like we were all having a laugh or messing it'd always be me that they'd sort of pull out or say you stand over to the side or you do this blah 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 and um, we had this one Irish PE teacher and um, I think I was I just I just had enough up to that point and I was just sick of it and um, so she like pulled me out and said you've got to stand over there and all my mates were fine to like sit with each other and I was like I think I said it under my breath I was like oh, I'm sick of this race to school and she was like what what are you on about and like pulled me to the sides and like made me like wait after school and everything and um, and then she was like I don't get how you'd say something like that like I understand how you feel I'm Irish <laughs> I was just like oh my god <laughs> I was just like no I know so it's like if you if you can't go to the teachers of Ulta you've just got to sort of deal with it yourself
0: do you feel like because of that like because from a young age you have to deal with all this discrimination that like you've built up like this defense mechanism now and like do you feel like you just just shut away from all all that now like how do you react to it now when like stuff like that goes on
1: I think I'm still shocked to be honest. I think the main reason I'm shocked is because we're meant to have come so far, and you see so much on social media, don't you? About everyone being inclusive and everyone's open now and aware of racism and trying to be anti-racist. But then even now, I still get the the odd thing, and it shocks me. It really shocks me. Um, Like for example, this happened quite recently. um, Because my name's Olivia, and I think it's because I don't know if it's because I'm in Leeds or what, but they think I've got like an african name when i go to say my name like how they would be like what's your name and i'm like olivia and they're like sorry how like how do you spell that and i'm like it's olivia and they're like sorry is that and they can't get it like they think i'm gonna say i don't know like a traditional african name and i'm like no my name's just olivia
0: that's a, that's another thing though because i've seen that came up with, uh, recently like where a lot of white people will they can say all these irish names so easy like Nivo, yeah, what you mean?
1: I know, the brains can't do it. It's yeah, like they just don't try to say it. Yeah. Um, and then that's when you get those microaggressions of people's being like, can I call you this? Can I call you that? Um, but for me, I think I get it in the opposite way. Like people just expect me to have an ethnic sounding name, and I have yeah. probably got the most common name <laughs> in the UK. Yeah, you I know. I'm <laughs> in <I've laughs> the top ten, but it in that. It, <laughs> it is. Olivia, everyone's yeah. <laughs> everyone's called Olivia, but yeah, people just expect something different. So.
0: But um, is it on, on like social media and that as well. Like, do you remember when everyone was doing um, the black squares? Oh yeah. Like.
1: Yeah, I did so- like that to be honest.
0: And then it was it was funny. Like as soon as. Um, you know, it got slated. All the people who posted it, I deleted them.
1: And I, <laughs> some of them deleted it even before that. They're like, they posted it for the day and then deleted it right after. But I think with that, people were literally just ticking the box, weren't they? Just to say, oh, yeah. oh I did it, I support it. But if you're not actually going to learn about these things and change your way of thinking or educate yourself, then what's the point? But then I think um, for white people, maybe not so much on social media, but they should just be educating themselves I think because I think they've sort of lived in a bubble up until recent years which is weird they just weren't aware that this kind of thing existed like you get loads of white people saying oh like race people even say racism's over it's it's done with we dealt with that like years ago but I think this bubble's being popped and people are now realizing oh I have been privileged and I have been had benefited from being white um, so I think just education on that and sort of acknowledging your privilege, that's enough. Just learn learn about what's going on in the world.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's what a lot of them seem to struggle with. Like, they can't accept this white privilege that they got. Like, mm. do you know what I mean? It's
1: like I agree.
0: Yeah. It's like they think that like, oh, well, I didn't ask for it, but I've got it. It's like, well, you've still got it. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Respect
1: what you've got <laughs> and, like, use it to actually do yeah, good. Exactly. I think as well, Um, the, like, the misconception with it is that if you're a poor or a working white, sorry, a working class white person, um, they can't, like, understand how they've got a privilege because they might have come from sort of, like, a low-income background or they might not have a good job, so they're like, how am I privileged? But then when you look at it in, compas- in comparison to a black person who might be working class as well or might be going for the same job in most cases you're more likely to be they're more likely to be chosen for a better job and so that's where the privilege comes from
0: and and this was about um, Jermaine for last week Paul because you're in relationship aren't you and you were saying about like when you're out in public and like you're kissing your girlfriends or whatever you get like stared at like what what what, what happened there
1: so (laughs) what happens and so yeah like I was saying last week if I am sort of holding, I try and shy away from it. To be honest, I don't really like holding hands in public because of this. But it is—it's the older black people that'll—they'll sometimes tut at me as well, or like they'll look me up and down and they'll fully snarl me. Um, but yeah, there's just like a, there's a deep-rooted homophobia in the black community, and I think it really shows. I—I um, I think most other well, other people wouldn't really see it, but I see it all the time. Um, I think it comes like in a lot of the. Sort of black music and things like that. There's a lot of homophobic slurs that are used, or songs that are fully homophobic. Like I remember when I was little, like hearing these songs, and I didn't know it was hom- They were homophobic songs, and I'd be like singing along <laughs> and everything. And um, then I realised, like later on, like what the hell was I singing? Um. But yeah, it is. It is a big problem. Like they do. They just don't like to see it. They don't like to see it. Um, and it's. A, I think they sort of look at me as if to say, like, not you. Like as if like, white people can do it, but not you. I think I think it probably comes down to representation as well. Like we were saying, um, I think because they don't see any black gay people, and they've been taught since they were little that it's the worst thing in the world. Like they honestly think it's it's awful, um, really? and yeah, they think it's awful. So they'll they don't see any black people on television or film. All they see is white people being represented. So I think when they see a black person that's openly gay or they're just out and proud. Um, then they just can't comprehend it. They can't, they can't understand why a black person would be gay, and um, so they will. They sort of think you're doing something completely wrong. That's why you get the looks and the tuts and everything. I feel, I
0: feel like that, that doesn't get talked about enough because I've never really heard about never that. Never heard of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because if you think about it, for because white people are on a minority group, if you're getting looked up for being gay, you're just getting looked up for being gay. That's it. Um, that's a problem in itself but then if you're being if you're a black gay person and you're, you're out people are looking black people are looking at you because you're a black gay person and it's wrong and they don't agree with it so that, that's another privilege I think as well
0: thank you Olivia like it's been do you know what I mean like because even even for me like obviously the, the aspects that I need I need to educate myself on so like just listening to you and listening to your experiences like it, it's boss for me as well and it and it will be for like other people listening too.
1: Yeah, I think for some people, like they they would never even know that it's a thing, or never know like how real the experiences are. Like when when you were saying, have you ever experienced racism? It's like yeah, from when I was like six or seven. Like that's that in itself is shocking, isn't it? Yeah. But to me and to other black people I know and like family and friends, it is just like we all know it happened to all of us, and we all get told about racism when we're really really young, like as a way to protect us. But yeah, it's like, if you're in Liverpool, or if you're in the UK, and you're black, you're going to experience racism.
0: It's just, honestly, like, it just, it puzzles me that, like, within 20, you know what I mean, whatever year we are in. It's and,
1: disgusting, isn't
0: it? Because uh, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't have happened in the first place, do you know what I mean? Like, it should, should never happen, like, I don't feel like, do you know what, do you know what's so annoying when white people say that they can be racially discriminated against?
1: Don't get me started. <laughs> get me started <laughs> or when they come back with, well, well black people are racist to me no they're not no no they're not it doesn't exist uh, it, it, it's like when
0: straight people say, say like oh buy his knee plaids for straight <laughs> people
1: like... oh fuck off that's the same as when with the whole black lives matter thing and that like loads of white people saying well I don't believe in black lives matter I believe in all lives and it's like come on you're completely un- undermining the whole point of it exactly because like you, what you... are you trying to gain yeah if you think all lives matter, then you wouldn't be saying all lives matter. You'd understand
0: that the reason black lives matter is because black people are always discriminated against from When yeah. when you were born. Like you, you yeah, discrimination daily. Like from six years old, you've had to confront that.
1: Like yeah, eh. I know it's. It, <laughs> we could go on for days. It, it you know, is we, it's appalling. Yeah. You no, know, some of the stories I've got about racism in in um, Liverpool, they are shocking. Like it is really bad. But, yeah, hopefully we are going in the right direction and it has improved and it is improving. But yeah. I think, like, because it's it's been so bad for so long, it will take a long time to fully, like, eradicate it.
0: Yeah. Do you, th- do you think that, like, it, it'll happen within our lifetime? Or
1: no. No, happening? I don't think so, unfortunately. No. There's a generation above us that, the, like, most of them are racist. A lot of them are racist. And then with the kids growing up now, they're still the ignorant ones so we needed to completely fizzle out and keep educating generations and generations but i think it'll be a long time after after we're gone
0: so my next guest today is Ree rugel how are you today Ree?
3: i'm fine thank you how are you
0: brilliant yeah thank you for coming on such a short notice that's fine so you're 19 aren't you yeah,
3: 19.
0: And you've just been telling me that uh, you went to an all-boys school. So how was that? like? Did, did you come out at school or was it a bit later on? Um,
3: Well, I everyone kind of already could tell. You could tell um, I was very flamboyant when I was younger. Obviously, I didn't look the way I did now, so it, people would guess that I was gay. Um, so I came out to everyone, including my family and all my friends, in and, and I. Really, so it did come out. Yeah, but right. it didn't come out. As gay, guy came out as trans. Okay. Um. Yeah. So it wasn't it actually wasn't as bad at all. I have a very supportive family, so I was kind of lucky in that in that department. And um, I didn't have many friends in school, but like that didn't really bother me because I was just kind of there, to just get my head down and just going to school for school, not to like socialize with mates. Really. Yeah. So it was, I found it okay.
0: Must be mad though, like being in an all boys school and then. Obviously, you're, you just don't relate to any of them all. So what was that experience like?
3: Um, it was definitely different just because the things they would be talking about i had have no interest in. Um, but to be honest with you, I think everyone was just kind of like used to me. So I was still always myself. I didn't like put me, I didn't hide. I still went in with tan on, me hair curls, bit of lip gloss. I had none of that used to me. So I just think everyone was kind of used to me at that point.
0: And have you seen any of, like, the lads from school since since you've left?
3: Um, yeah, because when I obviously go to town and stuff like that, and you see a lot of them um, in clubs and stuff. But, again, not um, they these They're quite, quite nice, actually. I'm quite shocked sometimes by, like, some of them might say hi or some of them might just look over. But as long as they're not doing anything to my I don't really, it doesn't really bother me.
0: And what about, like, the teachers? How did they react?
3: Um, there was some teachers that were a little bit. Um, I remember I posted a picture one time on Instagram and I got called into an office and they asked me to remove it. really? Um, because, yeah, because I had the school uniform on um, in the picture and they wasn't really happy, but I didn't remove it, obviously, because I was not going to do that. Um, let them win anyway. Um, and my mum rang up and she kicked off. <laughs> Good. So it sounds yeah.
0: like you've got a, quite, quite a supportive mum then.
3: Yeah, and, and a supportive dad as well. His dad's yeah. very supportive.
0: And did they always know, do you think?
3: Yeah, they've always known. But everyone thought I was gay because um, I was very masculine. I did tie boxing um, and all stuff like that. I was very much like my uncle who was like the man-man. Um, but I was I was just so scared to like, come out to it. And I was always hidden. And I was dressing up in my room more than my nans. Um, uh, I was just too scared to come out because I didn't think anyone believed me. So, but then as soon as it came out, it it just took me time. It didn't rush into anything. And then it just led me to where I am now, which I'm glad.
0: And what was that process like getting from initially coming out to where you are now?
3: Um, it was long, um, but I definitely just say not to rush into things because I'm just so, I'm glad that, at the beginning, I wanted to rush into it. I wanted extensions when my hair was so short. I wanted all these type of things. But I just stayed because I was obviously in a boy's school. It took me time till I left school. And then when I left school, that's when I started to set up my transition a little bit more and get the process going.
0: So did you go to Tabasso or anywhere? Um, no,
3: I only started my hormones eight weeks ago because oh, okay. um, I was, yeah, I was waiting for so long. I went to the GP, but they were literally no help um, at all until I heard from another trans friends of, like, a, a clinic to go to, and then I went to him and was straight on hormones instead of waiting the whole route of waiting years to be seen, which is a joke, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, like, isn't the waiting time something like five years at the minute?
3: Yeah, it's a, there still aren't people from 2017, I've heard, which is an absolute joke and um, not acceptable.
0: And you, you know, like when you go to the clinic, what what's the type of things that like the say to you? I've always wondered. Though.
3: Um so when I went, we just—I had, I was with my mom, and he was just asking like questions, like how how long do you been living as re for, um, but like obviously I've always felt like really on the inside, but how long how long have been re on the outside? Um, and and I've got a supportive family and friends, and um, they can ask as well of like like what's it like depression and stuff like that, because obviously hormones can kick off them sort of things, so they have to like you sort of make sure to what's best for you and your obviously your health and um, and stuff like just like all like basic questions on um just how you feel and stuff like that.
0: And do you feel like you're fully supported by them when you're there.
3: Yeah, no, definitely, especially back to the GP because we obviously can find the GP unexpected them to be the help but like they literally wasn't and it very shocking and we were shocked how like quick it was to get them compared to us waiting four years from the gp which is a joke and so we were me and my mum were quite shocked the fact that we had just given them so quick i was there i was in the room about 10 minutes and he had given me a prescription
0: oh really yeah and i was sorted so what was the experience like with the gp then because it sounds like it was quite intense
3: yeah um so it was first Wednesday when I left school which is when I was 16 because I thought it would be best for me to wait finish school so there was not I wasn't going through a transition in school and and when I spoke to my GP she knew nothing at all she was having to sit there on a computer researching about trends and clinics and stuff like that which is obviously disgusting you should know if you're a GP you should know this sort of thing and and she was just now. She was giving me research, so I obviously went out my way to research, and I was going to Leeds, but Leeds was messing me around as well. And then I rang gay to see what was going on, and she basically put the blame all on me, and made me feel like as if it was my fault that Leeds were basically taking the mecha out of me. Um, So we just refused to speak to her from then on. So then when I told the clinic to be transferred there, I had to speak to a GP. So I had to ring the GP clinic and say I'm not speaking to her and I want a new GP to speak to. And then I was transferred.
0: I think that's what the problem is, isn't it? Like GPs don't seem to be trained at all when it's dealing with like trans community, like the gay community, any, any, do you know what I mean? Like they just don't seem to have the training in it
3: at all it's disgusting in my opinion because i mean that's such like uh, there's so many people now especially who are coming forward and they might not have the support from the family so they need the support from the gps or stuff like that and we're just not we're just not getting it
0: that's probably what's put like a lot of trans people from like coming out and getting help though because of the lack of exactly. help that they get so yeah just...
3: exactly which is obviously wrong
0: yeah definitely how do you feel on the treatments since you've been having the hormones
3: it's definitely an experience, obviously I'm only really freshly new on it, only eight weeks now um, so uh, six weeks first you don't really feel much but I've definitely felt this week that you, you go through a stage where you look at yourself a bit more and you hate yourself just because all them hormones are kicking in um, so it definitely can, if you're really low I can, I can imagine it to be worse but obviously I have, like, a support of family and friends. So when I'm feeling low, I have someone to confine in and speak to. So that definitely helps as well. But all in all, it's been, um, it's been all right up to now.
0: And what's, like, the next stages then in your transition?
3: There's a lot of things that I want. So I obviously want surgery and stuff like that in the future for loads of things. But I recently had my boobs done in December. Um, so my next one is this year as well. So that'll be coming up hopefully in summer and um, so that's my next like physical change anyway yeah for my transition
0: but like the, the important thing as well is that like you don't have to have all these surgeries do you like
3: yeah no you don't if you're if you're happy as well you don't have to um, change about mm-hmm. yourself to be trans. but you don't have to look a certain way to be trans if you're inside and you're trans and you're trans and to not listen to anyone who says because you look a certain way or whether you're not trans because that's just not right at all I've just always felt like from I know from like you can't say from a birth because at six months old you don't really know as much but I just always before I knew what trans was I was like going to my nans and she's having like, her wig and I'd be dressing up and um, then as soon as my mum and dad was come pick me up it's like oh I'd have to take it all off. But like that was me thinking that it, like it obviously it's not wrong, but I what well, I didn't know when I was I didn't understand. So to me it was wrong at that time. and um, until obviously I got to a certain age where I could sort of relate to other people that I kinda of I've obviously obviously always felt like a woman, but you kinda of put two and two together.
0: You seem to have like a massive presence on social media, that like you've got a lot of yeah. followers. So do you use that to like promote and trans rights and stuff like that.
3: Um. In all honesty, I've never really. I only recently came out. Obviously, a lot of people from my obviously boy school, so a lot of people knew of me. Yeah, and everyone knew. But there was a time where not that many people knew, so it was always, I uh, people would, like come on try and expo- expose. You know, as if I wasn't proud anyway. Um, and open to who I am, but I didn't really put it out there on Instagram until. I don't even remember like a trend. It was like five facts about me or something on Instagram that everyone was getting tagged in. So I thought that was the perfect opportunity for me to open up to everyone. And so I did. And then it was I'd done a whole QA on it. But I've never really been one of them type of people to go out and research all about trends and stuff like that just because I knew who I was just wanting to get who I was and understand who I am first before I'm putting myself out there and research and all other stuff as well.
0: Yeah, no, completely get that. And, like, when you done the Q&A, how did you find the questions? Did you get, like, a lot of transphobia or were the actually sounds? No.
3: To be honest with you, I, I really consider myself quite lucky because I've never really had that stage of, like, being bullied or, um, having any... Obviously, you'd have them some comments. And I definitely think a couple of years ago when I was gay to everyone, um... I had more like transphobia and homophobic stuff. Like it was no callers all the time, but it was always social media. It was never in person or anything.
0: You've got such like a positive story though. I think like it'll be inspiring for so many like young trans people yeah. because you've got you've had such a positive reaction and
2: yeah.
0: you know you you're so confident in yourself. Like it's so nice to see because when I've spoke to like trans people in the past, young trans people like they haven't always had a good experience growing up. Yeah.
2: Um, that's
3: why i hate sometimes like my mum was going in on me the other day when i was talking about obviously this podcast i was like sometimes i hate telling my story sometimes because I hate other people like thinking i'm like putting all my where i've had the best experience i don't want anyone else out there thinking oh my god i wish i had that, that experience stuff like that So like, that's why i hate talking about it sometimes but my mum's like no you need to not think like that because people will look up to you and one, listen to your story. So I just have to um, think, okay, there's sort of a handshake and not feel guilty for other people. I have to like put myself first as well.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Because I think what's important is that, like, yeah, there might be a lot of negativity and there's a lot of negativity around young trans yeah. people. So it's important that we also like shine the light on all the positive stories, yeah. such as just yours.
3: Exactly. No, definitely. That's what my mum was saying to me as well. So, um, that's buy I definitely to do this, be a good experience.
0: And what, what advice would you give to any other people you were going through, what you, you've went through or, you know, who might be thinking of transition in the near future?
3: Um, obviously, I've had a few messages of people as well thinking that they might be, considering that they might be trans and stuff like that. But i definitely say to my best advice for people is to just take your time, learn who you are, fit yourself out, before rushing into something that you might not think in the future because that's what I did anyway. I took my time and I don't think I would have been the person I am today or the place where I am today if I didn't take my time. Um, So some people say rush into it and get straight into it but me personally, take your time and figure yourself out. (laughs)
0: Yesterday is Detective Sergeant Christian Owens from Merseyside Police. And Christian, you were the first ever transgender police officer in Merseyside Police, weren't you?
2: So um, I'm the first serving police officer in Merseyside to transition uh, while serving as a police officer. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, I suppose, quite a unique situation and the first time it had happened. So suppose that that created um, some learning um, and and interesting experiences along the way. I suppose.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll 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 get into that. But you've just got one of the most fascinating life stories I think I've ever heard because we spoke last week, and we and you know I, I'm so interested in like everything that you had to say. So we'll start off um, at the at the early beginnings with yourself, and you come from a Catholic background, don't you? So obviously you've grown up around the time of section 28 and when it was still fr- frowned upon really to be gay. So as a gay man, and I know at the, at the time you hadn't transitioned yet, but as someone who was gay, how was that growing up with, you know, being from a Catholic family?
2: Um, I think for myself, obviously I was born into a, a practising Catholic family. Um, my dad still practices today, his faith. Um So that was, you know, from a very young age, that was the the home environment and also the school environment for me. So I went to Catholic primary and Catholic secondary schools. And I think for me, it created some conflict uh, with regards to who I am as a person and how I was identifying, certainly certainly as I got older and into secondary school and started to explore my sexuality. Um, and, you know, religion and faith was a big part of my life, and it was important to me as well. So, you know, I was very interested in religion, um, and there was a point when I was thinking of studying studying theology um, and becoming an RE teacher myself. So it was something that fascinated me, very interested in, well, they, they got to a point where it felt like I couldn't fully identify uh, as the person I was because it conflicted so much with um, what I was being taught at school and, you know, the faith and the practices that I was hearing about when I was going to church. So it definitely caused some conflict for me and it resulted in me not being able to be fully open Uh, as a person, because I felt that if I would have disclosed that I was gay, and I was starting to explore that, that I was going against my religion and what my family practised and what the school practised. So yeah, I would describe it as um, a a conflict that I had to deal with. Um, And I remained part of the church and continued to practice my faith until about the age of 20. Um, And at that point, Felt like I had to make a decision um, between the two because I'd started to identify as a gay person then. And so around that, around that age, so 20, I kind of left the church and continued with my life. Um, so, yeah, it felt like I had to make a choice, uh, which, which didn't seem fair, um, but it felt like the only choice for me at that time because
0: it is quite a sad thing really when religion's been a part of your life until you were 20 and then for it to suddenly just not be there like how was that and have, have you reconnected with religion
2: since then? It was a really difficult decision because as I say I was I was quite an active member of the church you know I, I was part of a folk group um, and we used to play at churches every Sunday and yeah. I would go to um, like the Catholic Association of Young Adults rallies and um, you know, it was it was a huge part of my life and something that I really enjoyed. Um, but for me, it didn't feel as though um, the morals that were being taught and, and discussions we used to have in school um, it felt it felt like I wasn't included and I wasn't accepted. So it was quite a negative impact um, on me at that time when I moved away from it. But years later and later on in life, you know, I did reconnect with my faith Um, and although I don't practice, I I still believe, um, so I've never lost my faith as such, Um, it's remained part of my life Um, and, you know, that's good because it's still a part of my family's life as well.
0: And you've just been mentioning about school, it was actually school, weren't it, where you actually, like, first admitted about being gay and it was, surprisingly, to a teacher, so what was that like?
2: It was, yeah. So so I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. So I started secondary school in 1982. Um, and as we know, in 1988, the Section 28 legislation was, was introduced. And so that's when I was um, 17 years of age, uh, going into uh, sixth form and do my A-levels. And at that time, I had got to the point where I knew I was gay. I wanted to explore that, but I didn't really know how to do it. Um, You you know, it wasn't really talked about um, back then. And you didn't see that much on the television. Um, And certainly at home, for me, it wasn't it wasn't talked about at all. Um, So, yeah, I think I started to really struggle at school because I felt quite alone and quite isolated. And that led to a situation with a teacher of mine. Um, So he was my German teacher, German O-level teacher. And um, I think because I was struggling so much and I'd started to drift quite a lot, um, you know, I was quite lost really. Um, And he obviously noticed and he took me to one side one day and we sat in a classroom, uh, just the two of us, and uh, we must have been there for a couple of hours. And um, I, I hadn't spoken one word because I... I was quite insular um, at that time, very shy, um, awkward, and probably a lot to do with what I was going through. And in the end, he just came out and said to me, you know, the way you're feeling right now and how you are, is that because you're gay? Is it because you're struggling with your sexuality? And when he said it to me, I felt this overwhelming feeling of relief that somebody had finally recognised the struggle that I was going through. But at the same time, I still didn't know what to say. Um, And I just sat there thinking, I want to speak, but I just can't. And no words would come out of my mouth. And um, in the end, he just looked at me and he was obviously just trying to make it a little bit easier for me. And he just turned around and said to me, look, if it is because you're gay you're not the only gay person sat in this room. And I just took a deep breath and thought, wow, (laughs) do you know, first of all, I thought there's somebody here that is going to be able to help me. But then I also thought he'd taken a massive risk for me to help me because it was 1988. That legislation had been introduced. And as we know, it, it meant that, um, you know, anything about homosexuality couldn't be taught in schools. It couldn't be talked about. And certainly teachers at that time couldn't disclose um, anything about their personal lives um, if they identified as gay. So for him to come out and, and say that to me, um, I was just so grateful to him for um, for putting himself out there, really, uh, to help me.
0: And that was the start of like... Uh... A lifelong relationship because you're still friends with him to this day, aren't you?
2: Yeah, we, we obviously uh, had a, a teacher and pupil relationship at that time. Um, as I moved on in, into sixth form, he, he did kind of help me and, and guide me and signpost me to, to LGBT um, yeah. support mechanisms. Um, but after I left school, uh, we became friends and continued our friendship throughout life. Um, I I still know him today, we're still very, very close friends Um, and I visit him regularly and he's been a big part of my journey of transition as well so um, he actually took me to to the very first gender reassignment appointment that I went to um, for my kind of surgery appointments it was uh, him and his husband um, that took me there so yeah, our, our friendship that we made Back then in school, has remained really um, solid, and he's remained a um, a stable part of my life. That um, somebody that's that's really helped me to um, to navigate my way around the LGBT community in a in a safe way. Do you know when I was a when I was a young person, and I really needed that guidance.
0: Definitely, and I think it's important that every like young LGBT person has their own like queero growing opportunity someone to help them because it's not always like we can relate to every adult whereas if we've, got, if we've got someone who's also gay who's growing up and has been through it like and it's their lived experience we can learn so much from that and I think that's why it's so important like people like yourself like doing what you're doing being so active in the community like you're a massive inspiration and what your teacher done for you you're now doing for so many others
2: I think that's why I do, you know, do what I do today because I did have strong influences and role models like him. The at a time when I was struggling, he really helped me, and I think it's important for us all to have somebody or a number of people in our lives like that. But particularly at school, I think.
0: When you you came over to Liverpool, didn't you, from from Roncall, and. What was that like when you first came over You're like, I'm guessing you could just fully embrace who you was and, and not be shy about it.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I'm not going to lie, it was really scary um, at the same time as well. Um, you know, I was still really young, I was 17. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't say I was a, a streetwise young person either. Um, and I just remember... Uh, Making that first phone call, um, I walked to a telephone kiosk um, a little distance away from from my house, so nobody could hear or knew what I was saying or talking about. And I actually got put through to um, the the London Friends switchboard, um, who then signposted me to support in Liverpool, and I made arrangements to go to a, a youth group um, that was actually situated in back Colquitt Street. Um, I, I've been there a few times since just to the location, you know, to see where my journey began. Obviously, the youth group doesn't exist anymore. Um, yeah, I made the phone call. I made arrangements, um, got me directions of how to get there from Lime Street. Um, and for me, it was a really big thing because, you know, I, I was born and brought up in Moncon. And, and back then in 1988, um, you, you know, just getting the train to, to Liverpool was was a big thing for me um, and mobile phones didn't exist. <laughs> um, so there was no connection with anybody back home and um, it was a school night as well for me. Um, so I was, I was venturing into the big city, not really knowing what, what, what I was going to find, I suppose. And because... Things weren't open for me in in the home. I didn't feel able to tell my parents where I was going, but I felt like I should tell somebody. So so I told my twin sister um, where I was going, just in case anything happens, Um, and off I went. And, uh, yeah, I was so nervous. Um, And I remember pressing the intercom um, to get into this building thinking, What am I going into here? Um, But at the same time, I was really excited um, to hopefully meet other LGBT people like me. Um, And that's what happened. You know, I went, um, I walked in. It was a really friendly place. Um, A lot of people the same age as me and older as well. Um, And that's where it all started. And I continued to go to that group. Um, I, I actually met two young guys the same age as me who uh, were from Runcorn and lived in Runcorn uh, which was really quite interesting um, and they both also became lifelong friends of mine who I remained in touch with as well and so yeah that was the beginning of my my journey and exploration I suppose.
0: Yeah and yeah I, I know you've said about like going to all the nightclubs and that as well so what, what was uh, the nightclubs like then?
2: Yeah, so as I as I kind of got a little bit older and started kind of socializing more um, away from just going to to the youth group, um, I started to kind of explore the bars and the clubs. And the first place I ever experienced was a place called Scarlet Bar. Um, and yeah, I remember walking in for the first time, thinking, "Wow, this is this is amazing." Um, you know i never thought i'd get to that point where i was kind of actually going out to places where everybody around me you know they were just the same as me um yeah. and there was a possibility of of meeting people and dating and you know having relationships um so yeah it was it was a really exciting time for me when i was kind of like 18 19 20 years of age um it was just so enjoyable it was it was a real kind of, um, yeah, it was a real exploration, uh, opened my eyes a lot and um, yeah, it was it was a fantastic time for me. And then, so it,
0: it was around, not long after it, wasn't it when you joined the police force? And well, when you first joined, it, it was quite, you said you had a bad time at first because there was a lot of like misogynistic attitudes, a bit of homophobia. So what, what was going on and what was it like?
2: Yeah, so I was I was only twenty three, um, so I was st- still quite young, um, not a lot of life experience I suppose at that time when I joined the police. Um, so it's the twenty sixth of October, uh, nineteen ninety four, and obviously at the time I was female, um, identifying as gay, and when I first started, I think I was quite surprised by what I encountered and experienced, to be honest. Um, There was definitely a lot of misogyny. Um, It was a very male dominant environment and um, there weren't many other uh, female police officers. Um, So I definitely felt um, that I was a minority for for a number of reasons. Um, So certainly being gay at that time, Um, I didn't feel able to be open um, at all. But quite quickly, it did get out uh, about my sexuality. And people would come up to me and say, you know, everybody knows, you know, um, that you're gay. Everybody's talking about you. And I just felt really, um, yeah, quite afraid. I felt quite alone. Um, I was frightened of discrimination and being treated differently for who I was. Um, and it took me quite a long time to, to overcome that, really. Um, it felt like quite a, quite a hostile environment for me um, and I didn't really see many other people around me like me. Um, I'm sure there were other gay people, but people were just not visible back then, so it was quite hard to find the support as well.
0: And you said that it led to a a change in departments, didn't it? To what you'd initially wanted to do in your dreams.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, For the first four years, I would say, you know, my experiences were were like I described. Um, But then I kind of moved to another team and started to feel a bit more positive. Um, Not necessarily because I felt completely comfortable being gay, but I just felt more accepted as a person. Um, I felt a little bit more established um, and I started to feel like I could live my life a little bit more. But I would say at that time, I I still wasn't um, comfortable being completely open um, as a gay person. Um, And I suppose that all changed for me in the year 2000 when um, I was publicly outed um, as a gay person in the police force. Um, and that was because I'd attended a, a Manchester Pride event and some photographs w- were taken of me uh, with my partner at the time and uh, it, they went into a magazine for, uh, as part of an interview and somebody obviously got hold of that and it got into the hands of other people and quite quickly I was, I was outed um, and I suppose my private life Um, became very public overnight Um, and I think that made me think at the time I felt quite violated if I'm honest Um, it wasn't the way I would have liked to have done it but it was out there then Um, but I think the way I felt at the time then with regards to my gender identity was it left me feeling that if that is how I was going to be treated as a gay person how was I ever going to come to terms with my gender identity as a serving police officer. Um, so that led to many years of being hidden, really, with regards to being trans and being able to do anything about my journey.
0: But then, funny enough, it was actually towards the end of the 2000s when you first confided in someone the, in the police force about, you know, what was going on and that you wanted to transition. So how, how was that? Like that, that must have been a massive stir.
2: It was, yeah. It was actually in 2009, so quite a few years later, Um, and it might not sound like a a lot of time that, but for me, it was nine years of struggling with my identity and wanting to do something about it, but just not being able to. And then in 2009, um, I was working as a detective constable, and I'd been on a, a busy late shift. And I went home that night and I was just online and I got chatting to a friend and we'd actually been working together that day. And I just thought, I've just got to tell somebody, you know, this has got to be released from me. I felt like I was carrying it around with me on my own and I just needed to tell somebody. So I reached out to him. And for the first time ever, I disclosed that I was trans and that I really needed to do something about my gender identity, but I didn't know what to do or how to do it. And I really needed his help. And um, he was amazing. You know, his reaction was brilliant. He said, you know, it's okay. I will help you. We'll do whatever we've got to do um, to find you some support. But at that time, I was struggling so much that I didn't even have the confidence or the self-esteem to reach out to find any support. So he did all that for me. Um, He started ringing round, um, both internally within the police service, but also externally, um, just to find me some support. Um, Within policing, if I'm really honest, at that time, we didn't find that that support for me. We did find the National Trans Police Association um, and I was able to make contact with somebody in Gloucestershire um, who was on a similar journey to me. So I did have somebody who I could speak to on the phone and that helped a lot. Um, But we also found an external group in in Manchester that was a trans masculine support group. So I was able to go to that and and meet other guys that were, were on the same journey as me. Um, So that was the beginning of uh, what I would describe as my social transition. So I started to transition and identify as Christian, but only in private, so behind closed doors. Um, I didn't actually tell anybody else within the police service uh, because it just didn't feel fully safe at that time. And it felt like we needed a lot more education and awareness Um, and we didn't have any processes in place for somebody to transition. Um, And I didn't see any other trans people either. So I felt a little bit um, quite uncertain and quite vulnerable, if I'm honest. Um, So it was quite a while within policing before I actually came out to anybody else.
0: As as you were saying, it was pretty much unprecedented. In fact, it was unprecedented in Merseyside Police. And you actually then got the force to take a look at themselves and think, you know, what what, do, what else do we need to be doing for transgender people and LGBT people? And because of you, it's it's progressed so much, I'd say. So do you, do you want to just talk about like what's happened there?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, when, when I first joined the police, as I described, it didn't feel like an inclusive environment. It didn't feel diverse um, and it didn't feel like we were fully representative of all of our communities. Um, And then in 2009, obviously, when I was trying to find my way uh, as a trans person, it still didn't fully feel inclusive. Um, But in 2012, when I finally made the decision to transition in the workplace, by doing that, I felt like I was able to um, educate other people and by speaking out about my own journey, I felt like I was able to inform people about what it's like being gay, uh, what it's like being transgender, and to really raise that awareness in the organisation. And today it's, it's such a different place. It's so much more inclusive and diverse. And, you know, we have dedicated teams, like we have a diversity, equality and inclusion team, who concentrate wholly on that subject. Um, And we also have the team that I work for now, which is the Community Engagement Unit. So I'm able to um, engage with all diverse communities across Merseyside. And it's really important for us as well that we are representative of our communities. So it's important for us to have gay people and trans people um, that can really engage with the LGBT community, because that's our community. That's my community. And, you know, people can come and speak to me or report crime to me and know that I understand. You know, I understand their journey. I understand their experiences. um, And it now has led me to deliver trans awareness workshops throughout the force. So every new person that starts in the organization as a new recruit. Um, I deliver awareness to um, and I find that it just really helps people to to be themselves from the first moment that they join the organization. But it also gives them the tools and the knowledge to go out into the community and to be able to engage properly with people with the right knowledge and the right understanding.
0: But what I love as well is that you've actually had like other officers reach out to you, like even from different forces across the country. And I think that's just, it just speaks volumes for the work you do yourself, do you know what I mean? How, how good you are at just be, being so visible to the community. And talking about visibility, uh, last year on November the 20th, which is Day Safety Remembrance and Visibility, How was it to be a part of that? But like, why was it important for you to be speaking at that?
2: It's really important to me being visible in our community and and not just as a a gay trans police officer, but as me, as a person as well, um, because I am both, um, you know, I don't just represent the organisation. And so for me, it's really important to be involved in community events. Um, And I'm a big part of... Um, you know the community groups that do a, a range of events such as Trans Day of Visibility um, and Transgender Day of Remembrance so it's always a fantastic kind of positive opportunity to uh, be involved in those events and to speak openly about what it's like being trans and why visibility is so important to us um, because I remember the very first time that I spoke at Trans Day of Remembrance and it was actually 2014 and it was only two years into my transition and I still wasn't completely confident um, speaking publicly but I made myself do it because I really wanted to to help other people as well Um, and I remember speaking and seeing a lot of young people and seeing the importance of what I was doing to them. And that's just spurred me on each year to to be visible and be a part of it and help to organise it and, and and encourage encourage us to have a place in our community to um, to celebrate our lives. Absolutely,
0: and like I think what what's important about that is that it's LGBT History Month now, and we're looking back at like you know the past few decades and how far we've come, but. What, go, what what you, you're you doing there, you're forming now part of the new LGBT history. Like in decades to come, people are going to look back at this time and see what was going on. And they're going to look at the, like what you're doing yourself as a trailblazer, do you know what I mean? So I think that's important.
2: Yeah, definitely. Because we're, we're making history all of the time, aren't we? And we can look at some iconic figures throughout history and talk about them. But then that continues, doesn't it? And that progresses. Um, and, you know, it's it's really amazing for me to, to be part of LGBT history. And um, hopefully, you know, in, in years to come, people will look back on my journey and see it as, as progress and as significant, um, you know, that I was able to speak out. But particularly in, in policing and making that progress as a visible Gay trans police officer who um, you know, when I when I did transition, I was the first serving police officer transition, but and that is a piece of history. But hopefully now more people will be able to transition and be themselves. So yeah, I think it's really important to talk about everyone's history, isn't it? You know, even the older kind of history that, that we talk about and that we see in museums, but also the history that we're making today.
0: Just as well, you, you do a lot of other community work, so I have you too
2: Yeah, so obviously part of my role, um, I'm really fortunate to get to engage with with the community every day, really. Um, and I think because I am so, so visible uh, a, a, as a trans gay man and police officer, I do get approached to offer support and mentoring, um, as well as delivering presentations. So, so yeah, I work with with mermaids as well. So, uh, provide support to their young people. Uh, sometimes they're looking for somebody to just talk to, and somebody they can kind of find out about the journey from. So, I do a lot of work with them, and also at the at, uh, the Hive Youth Zone. Uh, I volunteer as a a mentor, Um, so I go along there and um, support young people, sometimes people that are on the same journey as me, so I can guide them through that as well. Um, And, yeah, I also um, established a a transgender community advisory group uh, within Merseyside Police, which has become a really successful meeting for our community. It was launched in 2017 and uh, we've got some fantastic people that form that meeting and it provides a platform basically for trans and non-binary voices across Merseyside. So that's also another really positive piece of work that I'm fortunate to be involved in.
0: Brilliant. And, and what about in the future? Have you got any other projects that you're working on that maybe you could tell us about? Or?
2: I think in the future, as I, as I approach retirement from policing. Um, I think I'd like to continue to be uh, a transgender speaker, but to expand that more and and explore that more really. um, And for that to become my next, um, yeah, career opportunity, I suppose. Um, I already work across a number of establishments, um, schools and, and universities. And I think educational establishments um, are really important for me to engage with. So that's something I'd like to do in the future to really get across the the knowledge and the awareness where it really matters. Uh, You know, when young people are at school, when they're young, when they're needing to to, to hear about this information, really, as well as teachers and and lecturers. So I'd like to develop that more and and I'd like to continue... um, working with police services uh, across the uk i'd like to continue the work that i do today uh, in the future as well um and and obviously take some time to write a book as well
0: hey there we go it's going to be a filler one day as well
2: (laughs) maybe you never know
0: That's all for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. We're even on Apple TV now. So, yeah, just leave us a little review or rating. Let us know what you think. As well, if you want to get in touch or you want to come on the podcast or you know anyone that does, send us an email to loudandproudin at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media, and our username on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is at Loud and Proud In. See you next time.